Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Ransom Kent. I thank you for joining us. We continue in 1 Kings in our series, Kings of Summer. I want to let you know before I read this passage of Scripture that uh, generally I, every May, uh, get alone for a day and I, I prayerfully plan out the next year, a uh, calendar year of sermons. And so I picked this passage uh, in May of 2019 to preach on this particular Sunday. And I mention that because I want us to be encouraged this morning that um, I didn't search this out to speak to the events going on in our nation currently. Rather, uh, God in his kindness and his love as our father knows what his sons and daughters need, I believe. And so um, I'm just thankful as I've been studying this week to be encouraged with that thought. And I want to start by encouraging you with that truth, that God knows what you need to hear, and I pray that uh, I will not stand in the way of that this morning. And so allow me to read to you 1 Kings 12, verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 through 11. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Please follow along as you will with whatever you are reading the Bible from this morning. So I'm going to start again in verse 1 of 1 Kings 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today, and serve them and speak good words to them, then you will answer them. Then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old man gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said, thus shall you speak to this people who said, your father made your yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than your father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us before we hear from God's word. Lord, I pray, uh, maybe selfishly for myself, as I prepare to deliver the message you have for your people, for myself included, from this passage of Scripture, from all of Scripture this morning. I pray that you would truly Rest our minds, open our hearts, help us to be open and willing to what you would convict us of, and I pray, Lord, that we would be your children, faithful disciples. Listen. So this morning, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So uh, what takes place in this passage? Very simply, what happens is a, a conversation takes place between a new king and his subjects, uh, the subjects by representative make a request 
that request is heard, advice is given, some rejected, some accepted, and then a verdict or a conclusion is made, and that verdict precipitates division. You don't see it here in the passage, but, but after this moment, Jeroboam and the, Israelite, the ten tribes of Israel from the north split off from the kingdom, and a nation is divided in two. <laughs> does that sound familiar? I think it does. And so what we're going to do this morning to give you a bit of an outline, uh, we're going to be asking three questions of the scriptures this morning, specifically this passage. Uh, The three questions are this, what causes division? What causes division? I think this passage actually has very good insight on what causes division. I look forward to sharing that, the answers of that with you. What causes division? The second question we're going to ask this morning, what causes unity? The third question we're going to ask is what, in the end, will end all division? What's going to end division? Let's get right down to it. Let's get into the passage. So let's ask this first question. What causes division? Now, uh, for context, remember what's happened last week. Solomon had many wives. He had many horses and a lot of gold. And his wives turned his heart away from God. And so in the end, he is, he's not worshiping God anymore. He's worshiping false idols, the idols of his foreign wives. And and what is the punishment for Solomon's departure from the law? It says in 1 Kings 11, 11, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. So what is the first thing? What is the foundational thing? What is the first cause of all division? What's the first cause of this division? It is sin. Sin is the first cause of all division. Here with with Rehoboam and Jeroboam, here with Israel and Judah, in our lives, sin is the first cause of division. So we have here the sin of a father rippling into the life of his son, causing this division, and then carried out in the next generation. And so Solomon stopped worshiping God, and there were major consequences to that. And I say again, into our lives, when we stop worshiping God, we worship anything else, and we choose to sin, sin, the end of that road is never hunky-dory. It's never good. There's never unity that comes from sin. Sin always divides. Sin always divides. That's the first thing that causes division, is the sinfulness of human hearts. Now, more context. If we look at verses 2 through 4, I think we can understand something's going on here that we haven't learned about. Let me run this through for you. So uh, after 1 Kings 11, 11, God sends a, a prophet to Jeroboam. And he says to Jeroboam, uh, you are going to take over the 10 tribes of Israel. You're going to become a counter king to the king that sits on the throne of David. You're going to be, you're going to take the kingdom. It's going to divide. You're going to rule the, the, the other half. And so uh, God, again, uh, he called this man named Jeroboam, anointed him the next king. Uh, Jeroboam happened to be an employee or an appointee of King Solomon. You see, King Solomon, in his time, during the golden age of Israel, think about this, he, in fact, enslaved the northern tribes in in forced labor. The major construction projects in the days of Solomon were carried out by Israelites under under servitude to an Israelite, you see? And so Jeroboam had been appointed the head of all forced labor. And so when Solomon heard that Jeroboam had been chosen to be the king of this alternative kingdom, Solomon, like the predecessor to his father, King Saul, 
tried to have him killed. And so Jeroboam fled to Egypt. Now Solomon dies, and we have here uh, the return of Jeroboam. He hears that Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is uh, uh, rising to the throne, and so Jeroboam returns now that he is no longer uh, being threatened uh, by harm from King Solomon. And what does he request? Release the northern tribes. Release us from our burden. Now, this request is what leads us to our second cause of division that we learn from this passage. The second cause of division is oppression. Oppression. The heavy yoke that's spoken of here. An undue burden. Look at verse 4. This is Jeroboam requesting of Rehoboam the release of the northern tribes. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. Now, God hates God hates oppression. God hates oppression. Listen to this uh, from Isaiah 117. This gives us a glimpse of what God desires from his people. So this is actually a few hundred years after this. The prophet Isaiah is speaking to the kingdom of Judah and here's what God is saying through Isaiah 2 the folks of Judah. It says, in, again, Isaiah 1.17, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. God hates injustice. What is, what is God saying to Judah here? He's saying, listen, there is a people among you who uh, you are, uh, who is experiencing injustice that you have forgotten. This people among you, the widows and the fatherless, they, they are significant, and you are treating them as if they are insignificant. That is the definition of oppression. And where does that come from? Where does God's passion against oppression come from? Where does his hot anger against oppression come from? It comes from the fact that humans are made in the very image of God. Imago Dei, the image of God, all humanity created in God's image. And because we are in God's image, God sees them as equal and he loves them. You can even see in Genesis 9, don't have to turn there right now, but Genesis 9, what is the reason it's wrong to murder? It says right there, you, you are guilty of shedding the blood of an image of God. And so oppression, this heavy yoke, this undue burden comes simply from not recognizing other humans to have this image of God. So when one person denies the equality of another person, the image of God is rejected. It's rejected. So Solomon in his day, what did he do? He saw the northern tribes as, as his labor force. They weren't equals. He didn't see them as images of God. No, he oppressed them because he saw them as less than. The question then for us is this, can you treat someone as less than and still see them as the same as you? <laughs> it's a hard question to, to say. Can you treat someone as less than and they're still the same as? No. The only way you can view a person as someone who you can use for your good or use for your purposes is if you, if you lower them as less than an image of God. While I was studying this idea, uh, I came across this quote from John Calvin, and what he's getting at here is from his, uh, his book called Writings on Pastoral Piety. What he's saying is, our hearts should hurt for anyone who's oppressed. That's the section just before I'm going to read. Our hearts should hurt. Why? Because all humans are in the image of God. The same reason our hearts should hurt anytime we see oppression, 
Anytime we see injustice in our world, it's because, not because we know the person or have had their experience, no, when we see one human uh, uh, bringing injustice or oppression to another human, it ought to hurt our hearts because images of God are not treating each other as such. And so what Calvin says is, listen, there are real hierarchies. You have kings and subjects, you have masters and servants, you have employers and employees, but he, he finishes with this. It is essential, he says, that we always arrive at this point, that we are united together in one flesh, and we are all made in the image of God. If we believe that those who are descended of Adam's race are our flesh and our bone, ought that not to make us subject to humanity? And he has this little side note, though we behave like savage beasts towards each other. He finishes up by saying, when the prophet Isaiah wants to persuade the people of their inhumanity, he says, you shall not despise your flesh. Your flesh. This is how I must behold myself as in a mirror. That is, in as many human beings as there are in the world. What is he saying? He's saying to look at another human, no matter who they are, where they come from, what color their skin, the language they speak, no matter what, no matter what culture they, they have grown up in, it is as if I'm looking in a mirror. Why? Because that person, that man, that woman, that child, they are equal in God's eyes in that I am an image of God. They are an image of God. We're a mirror to one another. Oppression takes place when we lessen other people. Oppression takes place when we forget that all human beings are a shared race with me, with you. We are all the descendants of Adam. We are all made in the image of God. What's important to point out is that oppression is a double sin. That's what this passage shows us. Oppression is a double sin. So why should our hearts break for those who are suffering injustice? Because they are our fellow image bearers. They are our relatives. They are our brothers and sisters in humanity. And so, not only when we oppress people, not only when people are oppressed are their images of God forgotten and lessened, but also this other thing happens, pride and arrogance. And so, the, the sin of oppression is onefold, the pushing down of the value of this set of people and, and simultaneously, you can't do this without doing this, lifting ourselves or lifting oneself up above in pride and arrogance. Let's take a look back at Rehoboam. So what happens? The, the request goes forward from Jeroboam, let us go. Don't make us serve you in this way anymore. And Rehoboam says, listen, give me three days. And so what does he do? He goes to the advisors, the men who advised King Solomon, who advised the wisest man to live at this, until this point. And what did they say? Look at verse 7. And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. They say, listen, lower yourself. Make yourself equal with them. Right now, there's a, there's a disparity. Go ahead and, and level that off. Treat them as equals. And they will serve you. They'll be loyal to you forever. And what does it say in the beginning of verse 8? But he abandoned the counsel of the old men. He rejected it. It's like it never happened. No way. That's not the answer, says Rehoboam. So what does he do? He goes to his Hot-headed friends. You can see that in, uh, in verse 8 and 9. And he asks them the same question. What should I do? What should I say to these people? And what is their advice? Look at the very end of verse 10 and verse 11. 
They say you should say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. Now, this is actually a rather crass comment. We won't get into the nitty-gritty of exactly what he's saying here, but the idea here is what they're saying is, remember Solomon the wise? Remember Solomon the rich? Solomon the one with all those horses and all those wives? Remember that Solomon? He ain't got nothing on Rehoboam. He ain't got nothing on me. My father is, is nothing compared to me. And then from there, here's what they suggested he say. Now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. Rehoboam not only lessens the value of the northern tribes, oppresses that people, he has for himself this vulgar, overinflated and accurate view of himself. Complete hubris. Complete arrogance. Utter pride. So how does he handle the situation? If you fast forward just down the page a little bit to verses 12 through 14, you see that he gathers everybody together, all of Israel. He's not going to do this in a private meeting. And he stands Jeroboam there in front of him, and what does he say? (laughs) He answers them harshly. He's not even talking in a normal tone. He's answering harshly, unkindly. My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. He's harsh. He increases the intensity of their oppression. This should give you some flashbacks. We should be thinking of another time in the history of Israel where the people of Israel were enslaved (laughs) and a representative went to that king and said, let my people go. Let my people go. Do not enslave them any longer. And what was that king's response? I don't think so. There's no way I'm doing that. And so here in this case, it's almost worse. You have an Israelite talking to an Israelite king saying, King, let your people go. And what is the king's response? I will do no such thing. In fact, I'm going to make it worse for you. Just like Pharaoh. This is a very Pharaoh-esque moment happening in Scripture. Dale Ralph Davis talks about this moment because this is the moment that that causes the rebellion, that causes the split, and he says that pig-headedness split a kingdom. Pig-headedness, that pride, that unwillingness to see ourselves as less than what we think we are. And we have to understand that in the same way that sin and oppression, forgetting the, the value of another human, forgetting our place and humility, all those things were caused division in our lives too. The question then is, okay, well, what causes unity? I understand. That's, that's all good. What causes unity? That... The problem is, there's no answer for unity in this passage. There's a hint. If you look at verse 7, what's the hint? And and the old advisor said to Rehoboam, if you will be a servant to this people today, serve them, speak good words to them. When you answer them, they will be your servants forever. What's the answer? They're saying, listen, humble yourself. This is the reality right now. You've put them, your, your father put them low and you are high. The answer is to level, if not lower yourself beneath them to serve them. And Rehoboam's answer is, serve? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Serve? I'm leaving that behind. Before he even heard the advice of the young men, he left serving behind. That's not the answer. And so to find a perfect serving king, we have to fast forward in Scripture. And I want to draw your attention to Mark 10. Here we have the words of Jesus Christ speaking of himself in the third person. He's just that cool. 
And this is what he says in Mark 10, 45. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Listen to these words carefully. For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. What causes unity? Jesus served us to save us. You see, Jesus, why did he save us? Jesus saved us so that we would be unified. Jesus saves us into unity. But hold on, the answer isn't just serve your fellow man. Like, that's not the answer we're going for. That is a good thing to do. But, but that misses the whole second half of the verse. Jesus is not a moral teacher that we're supposed to just follow and, and do what he did as part of it. But here, he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served uh, but to serve, and the, 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 the verse doesn't finish, so you go do likewise. No, it says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So where? What is the ultimate symbol of service? What is the ultimate symbol of true unity? It's the bloody yet empty cross of Jesus Christ. True unity takes place there. I'm going to be reading to you Ephesians 2, verses 12 through 14. Listen to what's happening here. Paul is speaking to Gentile Christians, and they have been the victims of Jews, Jewish Christians coming in and saying, no, you're not part of this. There's a division. You're another race. You have to become like us in order to get to Jesus. And, and what Paul is saying is, no, there's something else going on here. Listen to what's happened. Speaking of race, remember that you Gentiles were at, at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. It's a terrible thing. They're separated. But here's the good news. But now, it says, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, He continues, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I preached on this passage a little over a year ago, and, and the takeaway truth from that, from that sermon for us was this. Church, we are not responsible for creating unity. We're not responsible for creating it. It has been created. We are simply responsible for advancing unity. And so, the death and the resurrection of Jesus has already created true unity. Past tense. What creates unity? The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that service that he paid, the Son of Man coming to serve and to pay, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what creates true service, excuse me, true unity. Lasting unity is in Christ alone. Only in Christ is there no nationalities, no race, no political parties. It says here there is one man. That's true unity. So what causes unity? The cross of Jesus Christ, period. That's it. There's nothing else. And so as we take that information, okay, well, that causes unity. What, 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 the next question is then, what will end division? And so we have to look to the future. This, this question has to be about the future because what do we see right now? We see division. We see people who are equally significant treating some and others as if they are not significant. We have division, and so we have to look to the future to say, when will this end? I know many of you have been asking that question this week. When will it end? And the answer 
I have an answer for us this morning. It's not my answer. It's the answer from Scripture. But I hope you hear it. And, and if you don't quite understand it, stick with me. We're going to explain it. But here is the answer. What will end division? The spread of the gospel and the return of Jesus Christ will end all division. The spread of the gospel and the return of Jesus Christ will end all division. That's the answer. Now, this answer has some bad news attached to it, but then it ends up with good news. So I'm going to run through that. Uh, Let's talk about the return of Christ first. Let's start with the end of the statement. So the return of Christ will end all division. Uh, We have to have some understanding, Christian, of our eschatology. What is eschatology? It's a fancy word for how things end. How do things end up? And so the, the leading up to the end, uh, there, the scriptures make two things clear. The first thing that it makes clear is that things in this world will not get better. Now, this is in general. Generally, things in the world will get deeper and darker. Now, what that means, and it, sometimes I feel like my job as a pastor includes not only bringing the good news of the gospel, but also bringing the, the hard realities so we can, we can face them together. And here is one. With sorrow, I say that barring the return of Christ, <laughs> what we are witnessing right now in our world, we will witness again. It will happen again. It's not I'm trying to be flippant. We will see division continue and deepen until Jesus Christ returns. And so, Scripture makes it clear the world's situation isn't going to drastically improve Listen to Paul in 2 Timothy 3. He's writing to Timothy, his disciple. He's at the end of his life. He's facing execution. Listen to what he tells Timothy things will be like in the end. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If I hadn't taken two breaths, I would have passed out from reading that list. But does that not describe our world? Does that describe our world? Our world is broken, church. It's broken. And, And in that brokenness, I have to declare that no human action alone can fix it. No human action alone can fix it. This is irreparable by human hands. This list. If you want to re- review it, 2 Timothy 3, 1-4. through 4, that's, that's where I got that. So Scripture is clear. Things in the world are going down. They're getting worse. Not better. And nothing that sinful people can do about it will change it. So it's clear about that. But there's also clear about this. That while the, the world is deepening in darkness the gathering of God's people will healthily grow in light. In light. Matthew 16, we hear Jesus saying, I will build my church. This is not wishful thinking. This is not a hope that Jesus has. This is the factual, confident statement of a divine king. I will do that. It will not fail. Despite what the world has going on, this is what's happening with my gathering of people called the church. Later in that same chapter in 2 Timothy, Paul says this, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. 
knowing the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? Why is, that good? Why is the Scripture like that? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As the world plummets, church, which it will continue to do so, as the world plummets, the church will rise and grow. The kingdom of God will grow in his grace. So that's the lead up to the end. That's the lead up. There's this double situation going on. The kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God. They're at odds. They're not disconnected, but they're at odds. One getting worse, one growing in God's grace. And they're leading up to this point, this moment in history that's set. We don't know when it is. We don't know when it will happen but we are for sure, we hope for it, that Christ will return to this earth and rule as the king of his people. That's going to happen. And what what do the scriptures promise about that event? That after it happens, there will no longer be tears or pain or division or sins. Jesus will take it all away. It will all be gone. Division will end when Christ returns. What will that be like? So imagine for yourself, in contrast, Rehoboam standing there before the Israelites, harshly saying, my father whipped you with whips, I'm going to whip you with scorpions. Imagine the the division that hearts felt, the hurt and oppression that was felt in that moment. How, How disunified that group of people was in that moment as he declared his macho self image over that crowd of people. And compare it with this. This is John, the Apostle John from Revelation 7. He's describing what it will be like after Jesus' return. He says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And what were they crying out? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne of the Lamb. Christian, this... This is what we long for. (laughs) This is the better thing that's actually been written on our hearts. We know this is going to take place, and we long for it. The Spirit renders our heart to, to desire this. And so when we see images of God attacking one another, when we see images of God oppressing one another, we see images of God devaluing each other and building themselves up in pride, it hurts our hearts. Why? Because this is the true home that we long for. This is what we know our future encapsulates. We know this is what our future holds, where Christ reigns and people from every culture, every language, every color are together worshiping their Lord in unity. Perfect, peaceful, harmonious, loving unity. The sour note in this is this can't exist here in full as long as this world turns without King Jesus. Without Jesus, this cannot happen. Oh, great, Ransom. Great. Thanks a lot. So we just sit and wait? No? No, that's not at all. The Scriptures are very clear. That's not at all what we're supposed to do. You see, division ends not only when Christ returns, but also through the spread of the Gospel. And so then the question would be, I've had this question all week. Pastor, what should we do? Pastor, what should we do? 
in a lot of ways, I don't know a lot of the practical outpourings of this, but I can speak to what Scripture calls us to do. And I think that is of utmost importance. So let, let me say this. The most practical way that I can put this, it's a twofold what should we do answer. The first thing we ought to do is genuinely pray, come Lord Jesus. <laughs> come Lord Jesus. Why do we pray that? We pray that not because we want to see the end of the world, because we want to see the end of all things that are awful in this world. Only the return of Jesus will fully heal our world and the people in it. So we pray, come Lord Jesus. That's the first thing we do. The second thing we do is prepare for his coming. We prepare for it. What does it mean to prepare? So the spreading of the gospel is that preparation. Spreading of the gospel is that preparation. In the first place, we need to spread the gospel is in our own hearts. I need you to listen on this one, church. You need to hear me on this one. Tune in. The first, most foundational, primary thing you can do to support your friends and your brothers and sisters in Adam in this time is to learn and apply the gospel to your heart. That's the first, most essential thing you can do. There is no substitute for personal discipleship. If I, if I could hold your face while I say this, I would. Imagine. Maybe it's creepy. I don't know. If I could hold your face and hold your attention while I say this, I would. Because here's the reality. We can't outwoke discipleship. We can't out-hashtag personal discipleship. We can't out-virtue signal discipleship. We can't out-soapbox discipleship. Can't do any of those things. None of those things are a substitute for growing in our knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. Because as we do that thing, as we grow in our knowledge and love of Jesus, understanding what he has done for me, what he wants to do for our neighbors, it changes absolutely everything. It changes everything. And the difficulty I have as a pastor, this is not a wah-wah moment, I'm just saying the reality. The difficulty I have is, even in my own heart at times, and I guarantee you right now as I said that, many of you, many of us have said, we hear that, okay, pursue, grow in knowledge of love of Christ that changes everything. And the answer we have in our attitude and our heart is, yeah, but does it? But does it really? What else should we do? Come on. I need more. Is Scripture really enough? Is reading and knowing and loving Christ really enough? And my question is, do we believe in what we say we believe? Do we believe sola scriptura? That, that the Christian scriptures are the sole infallible source of authority for Christian faith and practice? Do we believe that? Or is that lip service? The scriptures are sufficient. Nothing can substitute my personal discipleship. How am I going to love people better? How am I going to be a better neighbor? How am I going to understand the, the oppression of my brothers and sisters in Adam, the other images of God around the world? How am I going to do that? By, by allowing Christ to speak into my life and change me. And so before we give up on it, before we give up on personal discipleship and look for some other thing, some other place, I really think we ought to give it a try. And so my, my suggestion is, let's just say for five years, I feel like that's a short amount of time, for five years, what if we lived like the Scripture is enough, like Jesus is enough, and we pursued 
are growing in knowledge and love of him just for five years, what do you think would happen? I think it would change the world. It would change our lives significantly. I think it would change our neighborhoods and the businesses. You see, our personal discipleship always is the first step in changing the world. Always. It's not found out there. It's found in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit and their plan for our lives. And so we, that's where the gospel begins to spread, but we have to talk about where it spreads from there. That's not the only thing we ought to do. And so as we continue to prepare for the return of Jesus, here's a few other things we ought to look into what, doing. First, we need to rehearse kingdom worship. We need to rehearse what was read here in Revelation 7. Gathering together any way we can in these crazy coronavirus times. Gathering together, worshiping as, as a church. We need to get together. We need to be together. We need to invest in our church. That is one thing to do to prepare, to build up the body around us, to share the gospel with one another. But it doesn't stop there. Moving outside this building, outside our circles of friends and, and fellowship with believers, we need to, uh, on purpose, diversify our dinner table. You've heard me say it many times from this pulpit. I want to explain a little bit what I mean. To div diversify your dinner table means you are willing and able to enter into uh, relationships with people from other cultures. It doesn't mean just inviting people to your house. I mean, sometimes you go to theirs. You enter into their culture where it's uncomfortable for you. But where we have friendships that are multicultural, we will have a witness that is multicultural. And where we, we make friends with, with people of all kinds of nations and tribes and colors, we will make friends with those who will be worshiping with at the end of time before the very throne of God, singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we need to rehearse kingdom worship. We need to diversify our dinner tables. We also need to work to improve the life of our neighbor. Well, wait a second, Ransom. I thought you said that the world won't improve as long as Jesus doesn't reign. Well, I tell you, his kingdom is partially here now. And as we go out, which we are called to do, to minister to our neighbors and our communities in word and deed, that the darkness will be pushed back. The light and truth of Jesus will go forward. The lives of people who don't know Jesus will be made better. And guess what they will see? The light and truth of Jesus. They'll hear the gospel through our actions and our words. We're called to go out there and make a difference. We need to be on mission in the world so that people will see the light of Jesus that shines. We also need to Last thing I have here is share the gospel desperately with our friends and our family and our neighbors. Share it desperately. Times are bad now. As we heard from Paul, at times, bad times can be a signal of the end times. I'm not trying to be super weirdo here. I'm just saying we don't know when Jesus will return. Who do we want to be worshiping with us here in Revelation? Who do we want there? You need to tell them about the truth of Jesus. You need to tell them as if it matters now. 
the gospel of Jesus, the, the unity that matters, the unity that lasts comes from the empty but bloody cross of Jesus Christ. Do we understand that? There's nothing else that can provide it. We've got a solution. We've got to share it. Now, I understand these things that I've listed in the last five or so minutes, uh, they're hard, lifelong things. We never stop personal discipleship. We never stop it. It goes on and on and on, and we, we, never, get, we never become perfect. We just slowly become more like Christ. But that's the point. We've got to keep pushing. And I want to make sure I, I'm not trying to sugarcoat anything. We're going to pursue Christ. We're going to rehearse kingdom worship, diversify our dinner tables, improve the life of our neighbors, share the gospel in a world that is getting darker and darker and darker. And so what does that mean, Christian? It means we will experience strife. We will see setbacks. There will be difficulty. There will be pain and loss. In fact, we will experience and witness abuses and oppression as long as this world turns without Jesus. I mentioned that before. That's what we can expect. But we march forward. We march forward. And we march to this instruction from Isaiah 1.17. Let me read it again. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. That's the words of God to his people. We don't just march forward in our own bootstraps. We march forward. We march forward under the banner of the spread of the gospel and the return of Jesus Christ are the only things that will end division. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray for the victims of injustice, the ones who have been victims recently and victims throughout history. We pray for their families, those affected personally. We pray, Lord, for the experience of those who've been marginalized all over the world, in our country right now too. Pray that while not all of us have experienced that with them, that our hearts would be broken. Why? Because they are images of God. Lord, I ask that you forgive us for my prideful rejection of others as images of God. Lord, I pray that we as a church would reject any action, any policy, any ideology that does not promote the unity of the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no solution but that. So to end this sermon, I ask, Lord, that you break our hearts for what breaks yours. And I genuinely ask the Spirit to empower my words in this moment. I genuinely ask and I call out for mercy. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And in his name I pray, amen.